0: Our scripture reading for today, this is out of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. So if you'll take your, uh, if you'll look in your Bible with me and just follow along. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of, of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. Least they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One thing I've noticed
1: uh, as I'm getting older is that um, I remember um, stories, I remember um, things that I've talked about with other people, um, but I don't remember who the people are. In other words, I remember, I say, you know, I was just talking about so-and-so, but I can't remember who I talked, so this is sort of like that. Um, I don't remember who said this, but whoever said it, I liked them. I remember when they said it, I thought, this is somebody I respect, this is somebody I I like, and so the fact that they said this makes me believe it even more. And he said this, he said, sometimes uh, the point of a sermon and sometimes the point of a Bible passage um, is not simply to Transfer or transmit information as much as it is to leave an impression. And so don't get me, don't hear me to say that conveying information is not important, but sometimes it's the impression that we are left from the text. Um, And that's really largely applicable to the text that we're going to look at today. It's a text that it's sort of like going in, uh, in the book of Revelation, and particularly for, say, chapter 4, where a similar sort of uh, event is taking place. And it just sort of is something you, you, you behold it, and you feel it, and you sort of sense it, and it does things to you that you don't know exactly what's going on or how it did it, but it's left an impression on you. And Isaiah 6, I would say, is one such... Um, One such text. In fact, I thought about, uh, when I thought about this winter sermon series, I thought, okay, all right, okay, at the ripe old age of 63, and if I was giving advice to a young uh, person, or a young parent, particularly, or a young married, particularly, what, what encouragement would I give them? And then I thought, well, what if I were giving encouragement to a 63 year old or an 80 year old and Then I thought well what about if I were giving encouragement to a middle aged person and so I came up that I had the same answer for all, for all of the demographics I had the same answer I would say this I would say take care to spend time in the throne room of God and so that's what I hope that we do this morning this text is a text that takes us into the throne room of God. Um, So let's pray. Gracious Father, uh, we uh, again recognize that we are without resources in ourselves uh, to understand or even get an impression that's accurate. And so we pray that you would anoint both the preaching and the hearing of this, which is your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So this is one of those texts. uh, it's one of the texts that uh, is neatly divided into four parts uh, you see it there in your uh, in your bulletin. First part is a vision of God, second one a vision of self, third a vision of mercy and fourth a vision for service. The first thing is a vision of God. In the year King Uzziah died, which was somewhere about 740 or 739 BC, Isaiah says, I saw another king I saw the king, the Lord of Hosts. Uh, now um, in a way that we don't need to understand uh, necessarily, um, Isaiah was given a sensory perception to see God in a vision. Uh, there are as many articles and books written on that particular point as you want to as you want to read. Um, and fittingly, uh, this God was seated on a throne. He was high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. R.C. Sproul made an interesting point. He said that. Uh, the the train of Queen Elizabeth's robe, which she wore at her coronation, 70 years ago or 80 years ago, um, was unbelievable. And so I said, okay, uh, with the benefit of computer, I Googled, you know, Queen Elizabeth's train at her coronation, and it is unbelievable. I mean, it would go all the way down this probably this aisle all to those doors back there. It took probably eight people to carry it. It was Amazing. And, and the thing is, is that the, 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 the clothing worn by royalty uh, gave an indication of the greatness of the, of the people. Well, in this vision, the train of the robe of this king, high and lifted, fills the entire temple. It would be like someone being here with a train that literally went from smushed up against the windows all the way, it just, it just filled the entire place and up to the ceiling. It's hard to really imagine. Um, And above the king were seraphim. Seraphim are some kind of heavenly beings. Uh, The literal definition of seraphim is burning ones. Um, And they were attending him. They were covering their faces. They dared not even look at the holiness of this this God. Uh, There was so so much reverence that they had for this God. Um, They couldn't even look at his glory, and they wouldn't look at his glory. And they had other wings covering their feet as if. This holiness was so overpowering that they just were trying to cover everything about themselves to shield themselves or to protect themselves from the holiness of this God. And they cried out three times, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, there have been many people who have made good definitions of holiness and glory. I'll try to give you some of the ones that have been given. The word that's used here for holy here in the scripture, the Hebrew word, is derived from a root word which means to cut or to separate. God's holiness means that he is utterly separate. He is absolutely distinct from all of his creatures. He is exalted above his creatures in infinite majesty. He is one of a kind in all of the universe. One writer says this, The holiness of God is his unapproachable and unique moral majesty and transcendent greatness before which sinful mankind instinctively quakes. Nowhere else in Scripture, nowhere else in Scripture do we read things like love, 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 or mercy, 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 even though God is loving and he is merciful. Here for the only time, this is the only time in the Old Testament, that equality is raised to the power of three, as if to say divine holiness is so unusual, so far beyond anything that the human mind can grasp, that a super superlative, three times, has to be invented to express it. This is an invented word in the Old Testament. You know, one of my professors, Ralph Davis, said, well, one thing's for sure. There has to be more here than sinlessness. Why? he said because the seraphim too were sinless and even as sinless beings they flinched in the presence of this holy God and covered themselves. One writer said God's holiness is not simply the best we know. We know nothing else like it. And So that's God's holiness. What about his glory? What's the difference? I don't know if you've ever thought about it but what's the difference between God's holiness and his Glory. The seraphim cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So, what's the difference between holiness and glory? Well, when the Bible speaks of God's glory, it's not speaking of something that God possesses. Rather, it's speaking about God's attributes, about his perfections that are on display for man to see. And so, we might say this way the chief end of all of creation, the chief end of all providence of God, the chief end of all history. The chief end of all redemption is the glory of God. The chief end is the display of God's perfections, the display of God's holiness. Everything, that's the chief end of everything. The chief end of Jesus' trial before Pilate. The chief end of his death on a cross. The chief end of a sunset. The chief end of the colors and markings on a butterfly. The chief ends of the purple color inside the off-white color of an okra flower. The chief end of the beautiful sounds that come from all of these instruments that are up on this this platform. The chief end of all of these things, whether the person playing the instrument or whether the okra believes it or not, the chief end of it, of all these things, is the glory of God. When we see the sky full of stars, and when we see the moon in fullness, we agree with the writer who said, the heavens declare. The glory of God. And so God's glory, if you want to see what's the difference between holiness and glory, God's glory is his holiness made visible. God's glory is his going public of his holiness. And of course, it's a great question to ask. I'd ask myself many times when I was working through this passage, George, how much does God's holiness and glory impact my life and my worship? My marriage my parenting, my grandparenting. So that's a vision of God. The second thing we we see in this text is a vision of self, verse 5. Isaiah understood that the heavenly beings, these seraphim, these burning ones, he understood that they could sing holy, 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 but he could not. A sinful man he was, he couldn't sing it. He could only confess that he was lost, he was cut off, he was without hope. Woe is me, he says, for I'm ruined, in essence. I'm destroyed, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Now, one of the things that certainly is reminding us that we're reminded of here is, Christians are not people, although we can come across like this, and I certainly have many times, Christians are not people who consider themselves to be pretty good folks, especially when compared to others. Rather, Christians are people who by God's grace regularly see themselves in the light of God's holiness and they find that if they're left alone to themselves that they are completely dead spiritually and they have absolutely no hope save in God's sovereign mercy. We're not folks that, a Christian's not a folks that says, "Yeah, you know, I'm really actually a pretty good fella. And the church, to be honest with you, should be a little bit glad I'm, I'm here. I mean, I got money. I give a lot of money to the church. You know, I'm a good teacher or a good this, so I'm feeling pretty good about it. I don't know about that deadbeat over there, but I'm feeling pretty good about myself. It's just not, it's just not what a believer is. A believer is someone who has seen himself in the light of God's holiness, and he sees that I'm absolutely undone. By the way, Isaiah was the most righteous man in the kingdom of Judah. Bear in mind the the man who is saying the woe here is the most righteous man in the land. Um, Old professor put it like this. He said, in the light of the awe-inspiring godness of God, Isaiah saw himself as unclean. He saw himself as the complete opposite of the God who is clean. And you know, one of God's greatest gifts to a believer, this is a post conversion experience for Isaiah this is not a conversion experience or pre-conversion it's a post conversion call one of God's greatest gifts to a believer is to give him ongoing understanding of who he really is to help him really see as he goes through life how corrupt his sinful nature really is how spiritually bankrupt he really is how perverse he really is how devious he really is how manipulative he really is how prideful that we all are by nature our minds daily create and feed all kinds of idols we create worlds of lust we can lust in the middle of a worship service just like we can lust in our car driving to Jackson Mississippi or any other place any other setting our tongues are restless evils there are no harsh words there's not one single harsh word there's no gossip there's no slander there's no immorality that our flesh is incapable of pursuing if left to ourselves. Bottom line is, friends, is that we are so much worse than we think we are. The most righteous man in Judah, the prophet Isaiah, says, woe is me, I am undone. And you know, um, often, And understandably, our realization of our sinfulness is more powerful after conversion than it is before. If all of our thoughts about ourselves do not begin with our own unclean lips, we can never be fit for service and worship of God. And we will be tough to live with as parents and tough to live with as spouses and tough to live with as friends. If all of our thoughts don't begin with Our own unclean lips. You know, it's worth considering, I think, to uh, think about the progression in the Apostle Paul's life. Think about the progression in the Apostle Paul's thought process in his life as he saw more of God's greatness and more of himself in the light of that greatness. So in A.D. 55, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, For I am the least of the apostles... Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. I'm the least of the apostles. Well, a few years later in AD 60, 61 or 2, he says, I'm not just the least of the apostles. He said, although I'm the very least of all the saints, I'm the least of all of the believers. And then a couple of years later in AD 62 or 64, 1 Timothy, he carries, it carries a step further. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. So now I'm the least of the apostles, now I'm the least of all the saints, now I'm the chief sinner. In just the space of a very few years where he walked with Christ more and more and was able to see himself more and more accurately. Thus we have a vision of God, we have a vision of self. Third, a vision of mercy. Isaiah was correct. In his self-assessment and his assessment of the people of Judah, they were indeed unclean. But he also apparently rightly understood that uh, neither he nor the people could make themselves clean. If you look at what he does, he just says, hey, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm ruined, I'm destroyed, I'm unclean. And he leaves it at that. He simply declares what's true and then just leaves it. And then verse 6, one of the seraphim, one of God's attendants who did nothing except by God's command... Flew to Isaiah, having in his hand a burning coal from the altar. The altar, of course, was the place where holiness accepted and was satisfied by the death of a substitutionary sacrifice. Alec Motir, very helpful commentary. And so the seraphim flies and flies down to Isaiah, touches his mouth, and he said two things to him. First, your guilt is taken away. Your guilt has been removed, turned aside, so that it no longer stands in the way of God's forgiveness. Um... You know, it'd be the same, it'd be the kind of like, uh, if you committed a crime and it was serious enough to put you in jail, and, um, and you just told the jailer, well, I just kinda wanna get out. And he said, well, you can't, but I want to. I wanna get out, and I'm really sorry for what I did. Well, you can't get out, why? Well, because you committed the crime, and you have to, something's got to happen. I mean, there's, what's standing between you and being removed from the jail is the fact that you've committed the crime. You're, you, you're, you're, guilt. You're guilty. Well, the difference is here is, is what the gospel tells us is, is that through the cross of Calvary, through the person in the work of Jesus Christ, the guilt is actually turned aside. The person in the jail cell who wants out is still guilty. The person who comes to Christ in repentance and faith, the guilt has been laid aside. It has been, it no longer stands in the way of God's forgiveness. It's been paid. It's been nailed to the cross. As long as the sin, as long as the iniquity stands in the way, there can't be any forgiveness. Somebody's got to deal with the crime. The iniquity must be removed. It has to be turned aside before God can forgive. And that's the cross. The guilt is dealt with. The iniquity is no longer standing in the way. There can be forgiveness. But the second thing the seraph says is not only is your guilt turned aside so that it is no longer in the way of God's forgiveness, it's no longer an obstacle. The second thing he says is your sin has been atoned for. And what he's saying is is that now that the sacrifice has been offered, There's now a basis for the forgiveness. And so what the thought seems to be is, he seems to be saying that the person is so covered by the means of this sacrifice that the sin no longer can be seen by God. The sin is atoned for. God essentially is saying that the sacrifice which covers you is sufficient to satisfy God's demand for justice. It was the Old Testament sacrificial system, Leviticus 17, as an atonement. And so... What the Bible tells us in a more wide way, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10, we read this. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. We have an altar outside of Jerusalem. Uh, One of my teachers beautifully put it. We have a cross. We have an altar that's shaped like a cross on which the Son of God was sacrificed. It's a cross where we, like Isaiah, can be purged and cleansed, where the guilt is taken away and our sin is atoned for. The person in the jail cell, his guilt remains. The person in the jail cell, his sin has not been atoned for. He's paying the price for being in the jail. We have an altar, though. We have an altar where the sinless God-man, Jesus Christ, was destroyed in the place of any and all who will cry out, To him woe is me I am unclean and who will look to God for cleansing it's interesting here is it not and so powerful for us to see that the God who makes us see our uncleanness is also the God who provides our cleansing so let me ask you a question what would life be like if there were no forgiveness what would life be like if there were no atonement you can't be forgiven. There's no way for your guilt to be removed. Everybody's guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person in this room—we're all guilty. What would it be like if there were no way to have your guilt taken care of? There were no way to have your guilt removed. No way to have your guilt dealt with. What would life be like? What would life be like if there was no atonement? What would life be like if there were no uh, no covering? What would life be like if there were no cross? What would life be like if we had no altar? Well, the truth is we don't have to wonder. Why? Because we do have an altar. We have a cross-shaped altar. We who repent and put our trust in Christ alone for our salvation worship not in the terror, as Dr. Davis said. We don't worship in the terror of holiness we worship in the safety of holiness the last thing is this a vision of God a vision of self a vision of mercy fourth and finally he has a vision for service you know Isaiah came in he has seen himself he's seen God as holy he's seen himself in the light of that holiness he's seen and experienced the initiating grace of God taking away his guilt he's seen uh, this uh, this work of God atoning for his sin and so when God says, whom shall I send, the only reasonable service and the only reasonable response that he could see was, hey, here am I, send me. After all you've done for me, after I've seen who you are and I've seen what you've done for me, look, just send me, wherever you want to send me. In Romans 12, it's sort of like uh, in the light of God's tender mercies, Isaiah presented his body. He presented everything he was and everything he had as a living sacrifice to God to serve him until the end of his days in a very long and difficult ministry filled with trials. Jewish tradition has it that Isaiah was sawn in two. Uh, he was martyred by being sawn in two uh, under the orders of Manasseh. So so here we have it. Uzziah, Uzziah reigned 52 years with a with a it was it was a very stable kingdom. Uh, but now uh, but now he's gone. But Isaiah knows something. He knows something that King Isaiah may be gone, but guess what? The king is not gone. The king still reigns, and that king will have a people unto himself. The whole rest of Isaiah chapter 6 tells us there will be a holy seed. There will be a remnant in Messiah that would arise from this seemingly dead stump of his people. And even today, there are people in this congregation who are a partial fulfillment of that prophecy that Isaiah made hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. So here's the question you have, maybe, December the 19th, right? So the question is, how is this a Christmas sermon? When is he going to get to the, you know, to the Christmas part of it? And um, you know, I will tell you that um, Christmas time of year is uh, challenging for preachers often because they feel like they have to come up with Christmas sermons, right? And, then you, and, and there's a temptation to simply preach anything you want to and then at the end, just say, and then Jesus was born, and um, everything worked out. Um, and, and in some ways, I suppose every sermon is a Christmas sermon, if it necessarily must uh, come to the place where it has to come, and that is celebrating God with us in Christ. But let me tell you this. This is really actually a Christmas sermon. In a particular way, this really, really is a Christmas sermon. Here's why. Because Isaiah's vision of the glory of the king, and I'm not making this up. Isaiah's vision of the glory of the king actually was a vision of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Write this down. John tells us this in John chapter 12, verse 37 through 41. In verses 37 through 41, John quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, that verse that everybody in here, if if you've ever read it, You've scratched your head and gone, man, that is, that is tough. Seeing they won't see and hearing they won't hear and all these sorts of things. And so, but listen to what John says in John chapter 12, verse 41. Isaiah, speaking back on Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Now, the words his and him unmistakably, without any contradiction belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those words are references to the Lord Jesus Christ. As as the old theologian A.W. Pink said, the one born in Bethlehem's manger was none other than the throne sitter before whom the seraphim worship who would grow up the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I was reading a question that guy asked. He said, hey, how about this? If you had asked Isaiah... Isaiah, whose glory did you see in your vision of the temple? He would have replied, Yahweh. If you had asked the Apostle John, whose glory did Isaiah see in his vision of the temple? He would have given the same answer, only in fulfillment, and he would have said, Jesus Christ. So yes, we say with Job, now, Lord, my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. But we also say with the writer of the Hebrew of Hebrews, because of the person and work of Christ, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or as John Bunyan said in my new life um, truth, my righteousness is in heaven standing at God's right hand. To God be the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel from the first page of the Bible all the way through to the end. We thank you for your, uh, your magnificence that you reveal in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we're often uh, tempted to say, uh, you know, well, I wish we had a vision. Well, we don't need a vision because we have something better than a vision. We can behold the glories and the magnificence of God in the face and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you said, Lord Jesus, he who has seen me, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You are the last and the greatest revelation of God. Uh, And we give you our thanks in Jesus' name.